Well, good morning, church family. Today we are continuing our school year-long series telling our human story. And uh, I'm pleased that Tamara Reeves is joining us today for 10 predictable questions, um, which will give us 10 unpredictable answers. Are you ready? Yes. What sound or noise do you love? Silence. Don't, you don't get a lot of silence in your life nowadays. You carry your phone with you, you have a computer, there's kids, silence. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of people chewing and crunching loudly when they eat. Oh. When friends visit from out of town, where do you take them to eat and why? I would say probably the Green Spoon is my favorite place in town. They have good variety and I like the service. If you inherited a large sum of money, what would be your first purchase? It's kind of hard to say, but knowing myself, I would probably go for one or maybe three pairs of Christian Louboutin shoes. Hmm. Me too. What a coincidence. <laughs> what quality do you appreciate most in people? I think authenticity. I like it when people are who they are and they're okay with you being who you are. If you were a person in scripture, Tamara, who would you be? I think I would like to be Noah. He had a really important job to do, and he carried it out very well, and he had faith and confidence. Who is your least favorite person in Scripture other than the devil? I think Judas would be. He, he did a lot of stupid things, I think. He betrayed a friend and a leader and a good person. I don't admire that. What energizes you? Cooking to very loud music. <laughs> I was going to ask you what kind of music, but that wasn't on the script, so I'm, I will move to I the next. I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do actually, but I am going to stick to the script. <laughs> what makes you cry? Onions, Kleenex commercials, romantic films. The typical women things, I guess. <laughs> Last question. What do you hope to hear God say to you when you arrive in heaven? I have kind of a little bit of a wild dream about that. I hope that God will say, hey, I'm really glad to see I've got something really special prepared for you. It's a big kitchen with a large area for entertaining, and there will be people afterwards to help clean up. <laughs> what Very more good. could you ask for? <laughs> Let's thank Tamara this morning for participating. Okay, let's get caught up where we are in the series. You may know that we are now in the portion of our story uh, that could be rightly titled Christian Church History, and today we turn east, and by east we mean to Asia. Um, we begin by considering this theater of the Christian story in the 16th chapter of Acts in verse number 1. 
where we read, Paul, and this is on his second missionary journey, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Now, first, let's take a look at a couple of maps to see where it is that we are actually talking. This first map uh, illustrates uh, the apostles' many missionary journeys. But if we center in now uh, here a bit to the east in Asia Minor, and if we highlight that a little bit more, we notice a couple of things. First, the city of Tarsus, where Paul hails, and Lystra, Timothy. And so today, we're thinking about two Christians who are actually men of the East. And there you see as well in the circle the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation, which are cities in Asia. Asia is a, a major uh, theater in the New Testament. In fact, there's 19 references which you see here to Asia throughout the New Testament scriptures, including those seven churches in Revelation. But here we find Paul and Timothy. This relationship between two human beings, one older and one younger, and I want to consider their relationship for a few moments this morning. We know that Paul wrote two letters to Timothy that appear in the New Testament scriptures, but also they co-authored at least five letters together, First and Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, 2 Corinthians, and even in the magisterial letter to Romans, we read, Timothy sends greetings. They have a ministry working relationship together, one the teacher, the other the student. In fact, we read these words in 1 Corinthians, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, Paul says, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. And if you read the New Testament through, you discover this somewhat famous relationship between the great apostle Paul and his young apprentice Timothy. Let me remind you again, two men of the East, two Asians, if you will. So what lessons could we learn from this relationship that might be of some benefit to us today? I think at least three. The first, I suspect, is obvious, but that is the significance of actually passing the great story from generation to generation. It's interesting that John Calvin, the great reformer, he writes commentaries of these letters from Paul and Timothy, but at the beginning of these commentaries, he dedicates his work to a man by the name of Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, who is the guardian of the young king Edward VI, who is 19 at the time, in England. So he dedicates his commentaries of First and Second Timothy to this man who's functioning as a tutor. 
I want to read to you a little bit from the introduction from Calvin because I think it adds some clarity to how these books can be significant to us. Calvin writes to the most noble and truly Christian prince, Edward, Duke of Somerset, Earl of Hertford, etc., protector of England and Ireland, and here it is, royal tutor. From John Calvin, offering his salutations, July 1556. And this, this is what he has to say to this tutor. When a pupil belongs to private life and his wealth is moderate, the work of a tutor is attended by difficulty. But you hold the office of tutor, not of the king only, but of a very large kingdom. For my own part, neither the distance of place nor my humble rank could prevent me from congratulating you on your distinguished success in promoting the glory of Christ. I thought that it was my duty to offer you my commentaries on two of Paul's epistles. Nor have I selected at random the gift that I should offer, but in exercise of my judgment have selected that which appeared to me to be the most suitable. Here Paul admonishes his beloved Timothy by what kind of doctrine he must edify the church of God, what vices and enemies he must resist, and how many annoyances he must endure. Now, since in order to restore the English church, which along with almost every part of Christendom has been miserably corrupted by the shocking wickedness of popery, you employ your strenuous efforts under the direction of your king, and for that purpose, and here it is, you have many Timothys under your charge. Neither they nor you can direct your holy transactions in a more profitable manner than by taking the rule laid down by Paul as your pattern. So what Calvin is saying to this tutor is your work is essential. It is of enormous significance. You are tutoring not only this young king, but an entire nation in the story of the gospel, in the richness of the truth that exists in the Christian religion. Take your job seriously. Passing this narrative from one generation to the next is of incredible importance. A couple things we might think about in this regard. First, maybe we could respond to this particular little cartoon. I really love it. I hope you will as well. A couple men there in antiquity and the line underneath, there I go still writing BC on my checks. Um, all the time, don't we? We talk about, boy, time flies. Whew, I can't believe how fast things go. Oh, I can't believe the kids are growing up. I'm getting older. We talk all the time about time. But I wonder how prepared we are for the future. I wonder how often we actually make decisions, even as Christians, to think about the nature of the movement, the character of the story moving forward. I suspect that somehow we know time is moving on, but perhaps we don't give enough attention to the fact that times are changing and we've got to pay attention. Perhaps this is the reason. Um, I actually would like to call on Craig Scott and the student Chelsea Bond for a moment to come forward. I need you to illustrate something. I'm seeing there's great enthusiasm here in this particular uh, request. So I'd like to, um, 
I'd like to consider uh, the fact that uh, the Apostle Paul, in his relationship with Timothy, says, I have, I have laid my hands on you, okay? I've laid my hands on you. I'm caring about you and the future. Now, I was doing some thinking this week about the actual physicality of one generation laying hands on the next generation. So, Dr. Scott, if you would just hold this shovel. Dr. Scott is very productive. He works. He's accomplishing things, illustrated by the presence of um, perhaps a baton later. The presence of a shovel, right? Now, if Dr. Scott... Um, please pay attention to yep. what we're doing, guys. Uh, this is a... Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I see that you... Yeah, I can see why they're responding. You, they've no doubt heard that from you from time to time. So let's suppose for a minute that uh, Dr. Scott is the older generation and... <laughs> And he wishes to lay hands, that is, pass on blessing, just like Paul wishes to pass on blessing in the next. So could you just lay hands on your student for a moment? Hands, plural. <laughs> Let me make this a little easier. What has to happen to lay hands on the next generation. You have to set aside your work. You see, investment in the next... I should let you go back to your seat so that you're not uncomfortable. Thank you very, thank, thank you very much, Chelsea. <laughs> you see, to lay hands on the next generation requires less productivity an accomplishment in the present moment. It is, if you will, expensive to invest in the future, for it limits what can be done now. Now, in this academic community, we talk often about the cost of Christian higher education, the cost of Christian education. It is expensive. Resources invested in the future that cannot be invested in the present. And it is easy for us to say, well, ought we not just take all of our resources and do ministry now, accomplish things in the present moment? Isn't it just too expensive? Well, I would suggest to you, as we consider the example of Paul, who stops to lay hands on the future, no doubt making his own ministry less productive, productive in the moment, that no, the greater danger is the more expensive choice is not investing in the future. We know this as teachers. We know this as parents. It's easier to do it yourself, is it not? But if we are to care for the future, I think we learn from Paul that we must set aside what is possible now because we care about what will happen later.
Lesson number one, the significance of sharing and expanding the story. I think a second lesson we can learn uh, from uh, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, I remind you to fan into, the fl to fl fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Other translations will say, I remind you to keep that ablaze, to raise again, to stir up that inner fire, to rekindle the gift, to stir up the gift. Paul says, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my hands, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now I wonder, what does Paul mean when he says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that is inside of you? What is he after there? I think we need to consider this for just a few moments. David Brooks' most recent book is titled The Road to Character. I want to read to you the very first lines from this new work. He says, recently, I've been thinking about the difference between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. Most of us would say that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues. But I confess that for long stretches of my life, I spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. Brooks says, our educational system is certainly oriented around the resume virtues more than the eulogy ones. Public conversation is too. The self-help tips in magazines, the nonfiction bestsellers, most of us have clearer strategies for how to achieve career success than we do for how to develop a profound character. And then in the book, Brooks speaks prophetically to our day and age and talks about this shift of focus where we tend to think about productivity and resumes over what might be said at a eulogy. He describes an experience recently where he was uh, driving home in the car listening to national public radio, and there was playing an old recording of command performance, a variety show that was for the armed forces during World War II. And this particular episode was VJ Day, that is, when the war had ended, and Brooks notes how remarkable it was that all of the conversation on this program was filled with humility, thankfulness, a reminder that uh, Americans and the allied forces should not think of themselves as better human beings in the rest, how understated it was 
And then David Brooks says he got home and turned on the television to watch an American football game. And the quarterback threw a pass to a wide receiver. A defensive player immediately tackled the man, a two-yard gain. And the defensive player jumped up into the air and beat his chest and pointed to himself, celebrating how great he was. And Brooks said, how strange that there was less self-celebration over victory in World War II than over a two-yard gain in a football game. In 1950, Gallup asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? 12% said yes. By 2005, are you a very important person? 80% said yes, I am a very important person. Psychologists have this thing called a narcissism test. Perhaps you've heard of it. Questions like, I'd like to be the center of attention. I show off if I get the chance to be extraordinary. Somebody should write a biography about me. (laughs) (laughs) The median narcissism score has gone up 30% in two decades. Brooks comments later in his book, commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. God didn't create you to be average. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says to Timothy, stir up the gift that is inside of you. Is he talking about resume virtues or eulogy virtues? The famous psychologist Robert Coles, his book, The Moral Life of Children. Coles was involved in monitoring the situation in the American South during the integration of schools. He famously interacts with a six-year-old black girl, Ruby Bridges, who has to endure murderous threats, all kinds of attempted violence, horrible and despicable things said about her and her family. In fact, for weeks, she is the only student in school for all the white families take their kids out. He overhears a teacher make this observation. I was standing in the classroom looking out the window, and I saw Ruby coming down the street. With the federal marshals on both sides of her, the crowd was there shouting as usual. A woman spat at Ruby but missed. Ruby smiled at her. A man shook his fist at her. Ruby smiled at him. Then she walked up the stairs, and she stopped and turned and smiled one more time. You know what she told one of the marshals? She told him she prays for those people, the ones in that mob every night before she goes to sleep. Cole says the words of a white school teacher, incredulous and by that time quite perplexed. As for me, I'd been interested in knowing how Ruby slept at night, an indicator of her state of apprehension, a measure of how well she was handling things mentally. But I hadn't thought to inquire about what she said or even thought each night 
before falling off? What to make of such a concern being addressed by such a child? He says, I ask Ruby after a while about her prayers, first telling her what I'd heard from the teacher. Ruby was cheerful and matter-of-fact, if terse in her reply, yes, I pray for them. I wondered why. She said only, because. Because. I waited for more, but to no effect. I started over, told her I was curious about why she would want to pray for people who were being so unswervingly nasty to her. I go to church, she told me, every Sunday, and we're told to pray for everyone, even the bad people, and so I do. And she had no more to say on that score. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says to Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is in you? Does he mean resume virtues? Your preaching skill, your teaching skill, your innovation, your leadership? Or does he mean something deeper? I suspect it's the latter, for in 2 Timothy we read phrases like this. Paul saying to Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel. I suffer. People turn away from me, share in suffering, hardship, endure, persecution, suffering, suffered, suffering, harm, evil attack. Paul says to Timothy, do not have timidity, but be filled up with power, love, and a sound mind. These sound like eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. Eugene Peterson says the task of the Christian is not the achievement of freedom, but instead learning service under a better master. It's not about personal freedom. It's not about achieving all of my goals and building my CV thicker and thicker with great accomplishments. No, it's about being a servant to a better master. Calvin puts it simply, true knowledge of God is born of obedience. If the first lesson of the relationship between Paul and Timothy for us is we must continue to invest in the next generation. We must recognize that the calendar is moving and it is our responsibility to pass along the story. If this is the first lesson, the second, we must encourage new generations to have a gift stirred up in them and this is not primarily skill set. And I'll submit to you today, brothers and sisters, this is not primarily doctrinal formulations which they can simply regurgitate as important as doctrine is. For on Facebook, we can believe in the three angels' message and be thoroughly racists. And we can believe in the sanctuary doctrine and destroy public figures. I submit to you, as important as doctrine is, there's something even deeper afoot. And that is the formation of character. 
When Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that God has put inside of you, I suggest to you he is referring to the very core of what God wishes for us as human beings, to be full of love, to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit, to have a sound and a clear mind full of wisdom. The eulogy virtues. Let us pass on the story, number one. Two, let us pass on character that will be a vehicle which will hold that story. Final lesson, Paul teaches Timothy not only to be a student, but to himself become a teacher, to pass things along to the next generation thereafter. We know that Timothy was imprisoned and then released. We know this from the book of Hebrews. In the apocryphal book, The Acts of Timothy, we are told that Timothy was in fact martyred about 97 A.D. But do you remember we keep coming back to that parabolic prophecy of Jesus? The kingdom, he says, but a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds when it's planted. But don't you worry, for one day these seeds grow into enormous trees. And this is what happens, the work of Paul and Timothy and the other apostles in the church of the East. Fast forward some 700 years, and we learn of this figure, Timothy, the patriarch of the church of the East. Timothy, more significant in his time frame than either the pope in Western Rome or even the Orthodox Patriarch in Constantinople. The leader of more than 21 million Christians, the Eastern Church expanded. Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Armenia, Yemen, Tibet, India, China, Japan, and on it goes. Let me show you some maps. This first one, the Silk Roads and uh, the various networks after that that made it possible to move east and west. This next picture showing the bishoprics under Timothy there in the 7th and 8th centuries as far as China. Next picture, we see the ancient city of Gaochang. This piece of artwork discovered the 7th and 8th century showing the expansion of Christianity. I like this next map. This is the travels of Reban Var Samu in the late 13th century. A Chinese monk, and what you see here moving from east to west is his journey to speak with Christians in Europe. Notice so many hundreds of years later his comment. He writes, No one has been sent to us Orientals by the Pope. Rather, the Holy apostles, including Timothy. Aforesaid taught us, and we still hold today, what they handed down to us. And what we learn about this period of history, this Christian church of the East, was uncorrupted by the abuses of the Roman church in the West, 
an intellectual Christianity, a Christianity that engaged in real dialogue with Islam, a Christianity that was in many ways Jewish and pure and effective in the expansion of the gospel. But then just as we learned last week with Africa, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, unkind to Christianity in Europe. In fact, where there was once 21 million Christians, within a couple hundred years, it had shrunk to about 3 million. Massive persecution along the way. But the seeds were planted. And Christianity continues to grow, to pop up. In fact, uh, I remembered that I had a bit of a connection to the church in Asia. Here's a picture of uh, the Southern Asia Tidings, an Adventist publication, November 1969, the year before I was born. And inside of it, a picture of my great uncle, Martin Kemmer, who was a missionary to India for some 14 years. The gospel just keeps growing. Lesson number one, my friends, we need to set aside our shovels, perhaps more often investing in the next generation. Second, we must make sure above all that what we are teaching is character. Character before all other things. And finally, when we teach, when we share this story, we remind the future to share the future with the future once again. I want to finish with this. On the screen, you see a picture of Madame Jean Calmet. To our knowledge, the woman who lived longer than any other human being in modern history. French. Uh, here's a picture of her on her 122nd birthday. Wow. But there's something I'd rather have than that. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. Notice Paul is saying to Timothy, be a good Adventist, look forward to the second coming, but that is God's business. In the meantime, get about the work of spreading the gospel in the current age. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Brothers and sisters, may we guard in our day what has been entrusted to our care. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen.